So let's take the word of God, open the word of truth to James chapter 5. And uh, believe it or not, I only have two more sermons, this one and next week, to deliver from the book of James. And as I've said on Christmas Day, I will begin a new series on the Psalms. So stay tuned for that. But at this time, we still have much to deal with in James 5 with regard to the subject of prayer. Prayer is an action that we as Christians can all agree is important, right? Southern Baptist professor Don Whitney wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Anybody ever heard that book before? Pretty well-known book. Second only to Bible intake, which he devotes two chapters to, is the discipline of prayer. He wrote, Those who have been brought up under the authority of Christ and the Bible know that it is, know that it is the will of God for us to pray. So we understand then that one of the core fundamentals of the Christian life is the work of prayer. And it is work, isn't it? It takes hard work to pray and to pray biblically, which is why it's necessary to have instruction, in-depth instruction on this subject. In fact, not only is it essential to your everyday Christian life, prayer is one of the first things that you experience as a Christian with the prayer of salvation. Only those who cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, can be saved. So if you want a sinner's prayer, quote unquote, there it is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pray that prayer. Like a preschooler learning the shapes and colors for the first time, a newborn baby Christian knows how paramount prayer is. However, even though there is very little debate about the necessity and vitality of prayer, there is plenty of confusion and misunderstanding when it comes to how and when specifically we should pray to God. Last time I preached, I spent some time explaining what prayer is and what prayer is not. As a reminder, prayer is not a dramatic performance. Amen? Prayer is not a religious ritual to be done bowing down to some image, nor is it a means to ask God for worldly wants and physical pleasures. God is not bending bending his ear to appease himself with your countless words. He's not commanding you to pray so that he can be your heavenly spectator. And he's certainly not waiting on his throne to grant you your every wish you desire as a mythical genie or as perhaps a make-believe, burly, festive character promising material things in exchange for good behavior. If God blesses you with riches, it's not because you've been a good boy or a good girl. It's because he's gracious. The Bible says that he gives you the power to get wealth. He gives it to you. You don't earn it through good works, and you don't earn it because you deserve it. 
He gives riches and physical blessings because he's gracious. So here's what prayer is, biblically defined. Again, as a reminder, prayer is the act of a true child of God speaking to God for the purpose of glorifying Christ first and foremost with an attitude of gratitude and a heart of humility. That's prayer. So if you ever wrestle with the questions, why do my prayers seemingly go unanswered? Anybody ever asked that question before? Perhaps you need to, number one, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And then, number two, examine the motive and content of your prayers. In addition to that, perhaps we could all examine when we pray. Now, we all know the command to pray without ceasing. But again, I'll ask, what does that really mean practically? It can't mean that you are in an act of praying every single second of every day, does it? It can't mean that because there is a, there's a myriad of other things that you're commanded to do. And if you're like me, maybe not a good multitasker. <laughs> there are a lot of other things you're supposed to be doing besides pray. So, so how do we apply the command to pray without ceasing specifically? Well, the answer is James 5. James 5, 13 to 18 in particular, gives us clarity with regard to when we as Bible-believing Christians should pray. He has provided instruction with regard to the specific when of your personal prayer life. The text before us today lists five seasons of life that call for earnest prayer to God. Knowing what prayer is, We established that clearly two weeks ago. And when you should pray will cultivate a deeper relationship with God. And in turn will make you a healthier Christian. The first season of life that calls for earnest prayer is when you're spiritually hurt. When you're spiritually hurt, you pray. Verse 13 of James 5 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. It's a command. The second season of life that calls for earnest prayer to God is when you're spiritually happy. Again, verse 13 says, if, Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Remember, sing praises is just another form of prayer. Prayer literally means to speak out to God. And when we praise God in our singing, corporately and individually, we're talking to God, aren't we? So when you're happy, sing. Talk to God. Now, we're going to cover the third, fourth, and fifth seasons of life that call for earnest prayer. The third season is when you're spiritually weak. When you're spiritually weak. Read, follow along as I read verses 14 and 15 of James 5. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Is anyone sick? We're faced with a somewhat controversial question here. 
Does James refer to physical sickness, illness, or could he be referring to spiritual weakness? Well, in many denominations and in many groups, the preferred interpretation is the former. Physical sickness. And to be honest, that's where I've landed in the past. But I'll confess to you, I only did so because that was the mainstream view and that's what everyone else around me believed. How many of you believe stuff just because that's what everyone else believed? I think we, we can all be guilty of that in some way. Well, this text is also cited to defend the theology of divine healing through intercession. Not only that, but this text has been used as a proof text by charismatic faith healers to justify their ministry of charlatanry. If you don't know what that is, charlatanry to be a, a charlatan is just, just to extort money out of somebody for personal gain. That's what a lot of the faith, faith healers on TBN are. They promise healing only if you sow your seed of faith, which translates to give me money. This text has been prostituted to justify that ministry of charlatanry. Christians have been led to believe that there's something mystical or spiritually mysterious about the oil in verse 14, which is very potentially misleading because one may be tempted to put their faith in a tangible thing rather than God himself. That's error. And so what's been stated so far just goes to show that this text has a wide spectrum of interpretation. So many have said that this is referring to bad health. But after a careful word study and a consideration of the context, a deeper consideration, both the narrow and the broad of James and of Scripture, I'm compelled to say that James has in here in mind spiritual weakness, Caused by persecution and personal sin, it's not referring to physical illness. Now let me elaborate. The Greek word behind the English rendering of sick is a verb that literally means without strength. You break it down to the bare bones exegesis, that's what the word means. So it could be translated, is anyone among you without strength? The verb is applied to all different situations in the New Testament such as mental ability, spiritual condition, general physical appearance, the conscience. And it could, I'm going to be honest, right? It can refer to physical illness. And now there are good, sound men that I would happily defer to in almost every situation that would take the position that the verb here in James 5.14 does refer to the ill. So at the end of the day, if you walk out of here unconvinced that James is referring to spiritual weakness, that's okay. I won't be dogmatic about this. And I'm not going to make a motion to have you excommunicated. <laughs> so it's okay for, to have room for disagreement on this. But I do ask you to put on a teachable hat right now and think, think, think through it with me. This would be an area of theology that falls under the tertiary or third level doctrine which should have little to no bearing on the unity and fellowship in this local assembly. Amen? There are the first level that you have to believe to be a Christian, right? Deity of Christ, virgin birth, inerrancy of scripture, the exclusivity of the gospel. 
There are secondary issues that you have to agree on to do church, right? But then there are third-level doctrines where we can sharpen one another on is a good way to say it. This is one of those. While many interpret James 5.14 to refer to physical illness, there are, on the other side of the token, I'm not alone here, there are some who would say that James is most likely referring to a spiritual problem. So, we've already considered the semantic range. I've shown you that the word can mean something other than sick, and I'll show you an example later. But now let's look briefly at the context, okay? And what I mean by context is what's before and after the text in question. The language of verse 16, that you may be healed, usually has a spiritual connotation in the Scripture. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Also in verse 16, there's nothing at all that even implies bodily abnormality. It's all about confession of sin. Horizontally, meaning to us, to each other, and then to vertically, to God, which is a spiritual discipline, confession. The other key word here in the immediate context points in the same direction. The word save, translated restore in the NAS, and raise up and forgiven in verse 15, all have spiritual connotations. If you, if you interpret this as being sick, what does a person with the flu need to, need to be forgiven for? The Bible does not teach that we become sick because of our sin. So therefore, what James is describing here is a person who is spiritually weak. Think of the context above verse 14 and 15. The suffering due to persecution. Think of the broad context of James. It's written to a group of Jews who are being persecuted and have scattered among Palestine. Which describes why they're weak. They're suffering persecution. And when believers are persecuted, they commonly become deeply discouraged. When they're insulted, when they're belittled, when they're ostracized, when they're marginalized. Christians can become weak when they experience of loss, when they feel sinned against, when they're betrayed by friends and co-workers, oftentimes by other churchgoers. That's why I, I, I selected the hymn this morning where it talks about friends disowning me. But Jesus on my, my cross have taken. Right? When people, when you feel abandoned, your faith weakens. It's normal. You become reclusive. You become isolated. You become weary. You become hopeless. And even negligent in your service to the church. And unless these folks are helped, they become depressed and cynical. Weakness or discontent 
discouragement, another, another word for it, is often a road wide open to sin. So we need to help the weak before it gets to that point. Because it's not sin to be discouraged. It's not sin to be weak. Paul is not, or excuse me, James is not calling for rebuke. He's calling for prayer. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, the little-souled, help the weak. It's the same word James uses in our passage today. Help the sick. Help the discouraged. Help the weak. One way spiritually weak people are helped is for the elders to pray for them. Which implies what? Number one, it implies that you belong to a church with elders. It implies, secondly, that they know that you're weak. Because you've called on them. We'll get to that later. And thirdly, it implies that you're humble enough to receive help. Now I have to point out something else that's significant here. If you look closely at verse 15, notice the will. Notice the future tense there. The prayer offered in faith will restore, save or deliver, the one who is weak. Now let me ask you a question. Do you really think James is promising complete physical salvation here? If you think so, maybe you've watched too much TBN. Maybe you've been too influenced by the emotionalism of contemporary media. But ask also, how many times have you prayed for somebody who didn't get better? How many times have you prayed for someone who even got worse and died? Now, I'm not saying that medical miracles don't happen. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for the physically ill. You can bet that I pray often that God would keep me in remission. And I also pray fervently for those in our assembly who are ill. But on the other hand, if we're going to be biblical, we must own the truth that God does not promise physical healing. But what does he guarantee? What is the one thing that we could say, God will do this? He will save your soul. And to the power of the Holy Spirit, he will restore your spiritual strength. Provide forgiveness. Provide reconciliation. So, Given all that, I fail to see how James is referring to physical sickness in the slightest because, number one, the simple meaning of the word translated sick, and two, the context, both broad and narrow, suggests that James is calling us to pray for the spiritually weak. There's absolutely nothing in the context that has to do with the body. Rather, we observe words like cheerful, restore, confess, sin, forgiveness, and righteousness. One way the weak sheep 
as I've alluded to already, can be helped is to call on the elders. James says, is anyone sick among you? Then he must call for the elders to pray. Which is one of two primary tasks of a pastor or elder. Pastor or elder is used interchangeably in the Bible. The other primary task of the shepherd, pastor, elder is ministry of preaching and teaching. The two most primary tasks of a pastor is ministry of the word and prayer. So here we see an authoritative apostolic command for pastors to carry on with one of those primary ministries. Now, in this situation, we beg the question, why call for the elders specifically when someone is weak in their faith? Why not call for the deacons? Why not call for the quote-unquote prayer warriors in your church, right? A lot of churches have prayer warriors or prayer ministries or prayer communities or whatever, right? People who are really devoted and passionate about prayer. Why not call for those people? Fair question? Well, one commentator said astutely, quote, elders were those spiritual leaders who are recognized for their maturity in faith. Therefore, it is natural that they, the weak Christians, would call upon the elders with their deep and rich experience to pray for spiritual healing. In other words, the spiritual leaders of the church are the ones who pray for the weak and hurting so that his or her fervor may be restored to a healthy status. When someone's weak and hurting, you need to call on the big guns, right? You need to call on the ones whom you have as much human confidence as you can that they're walking with the Lord. They understand the nature of prayer. They understand how to minister to, minister to your soul. It's just a sure way to have prayer, prayer of faith offered to God. Now, to be crystal clear, I will say one thing dogmatically about this. This text is not saying that elders have the power within themselves to bring spiritually, spiritual or physical healing among the weak and hurting. James is not referring to the individual sign gift of healing in the Corinthian sense. Because if he were, James would be commanding the elders to just heal the sick person. But he doesn't. The true gift of healing was the miraculous ability to heal crippled or ill people undeniably and instantaneously. There's none of that going on here. And so even if you interpret the text as evidence to there being a mandate for elders to pray for sick people, you must be extremely cautious that you see that the focus is on prayer, not the minister. Or not the ability to bring physical healing. James trusts that the elders are holding fast to the faithful word, which is commanded of them. James trusts that the elders are keeping the faith with a clean conscience. Therefore, he calls on the ones whom he knows for sure will offer prayers based on sturdy faith. Now, 
very briefly. What do we make of this oil? What do we do with this anointing with oil? Because, you know, we're Baptists, right? We don't do that. What, what Baptist church have you been in that uses oil and sprinkles on someone's head, right? Nobody does that. So why don't we do it? I mean, that deserves some attention. Why, 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 what would this physical application of oil accomplish? What type of oil is being used? What should we do with it today? These are all questions I can't answer in the next few minutes, but I'll give you the bottom line up front, all right? Let me stay in the army. Give me the bluff. What's the bottom line up front? We don't have time for all the details. Just give it to me straight. Well, given the audience, James is most likely appealing to a symbolic Jewish tradition that, that was done to conse- consecrate a person into God's service. Think of anointing with oil as, as, a, as a symbolic um, visual representation of being set apart for God. And so if we consider this background and, 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 uh, and the audience here, James would be recommending that the elders anoint the sick person, purely weak person, in order to vividly show that the person is being set apart for God's special attention and care, namely through prayer. Simply put. Now, we have not adopted this tradition because I said we're, we're Baptistic Gentiles. It's not, James is not writing a continual, universal prescription for us. But there is one mainline, one mainline denomination that does this. Uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance does this. And that's not wrong. It's not sinful. But it's unnecessary because James is not prescribing a permanent rule binding on the universal church. We come to know that truth, not only as we consider the historical context, but we also observe that many healings in the New Testament were accomplished without anointing. We also observe that healing, spiritually or physically, does indeed call for prayer. That's the third season of life that calls for earnest prayer when you're spiritually weak. The fourth season of life that calls for earnest prayer to God is when you're spiritually defiant. Verse 16a. James goes on to say, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. In the Greek, confess. This is important. This is basic theology here. Confession, it simply means to say the same thing. Confession literally means to say the same thing. Every time you see the word confess in your Bible, that's what it means. In other words, when you confess, you're not just saying to yourself, to others, and to God that you broke God's commandment. You're not simply saying, I've sinned. You're actually saying the same thing God says about your sin. You're agreeing with God that the sin you've committed is evil, deserving a just punishment, and you're taking personal ownership and responsibility for your wrongdoing. In his book, Lord, Teach Me to Pray, John MacArthur wrote this, Confessing your sins means acknowledging that God's perspective of our transgressions is correct. For that reason, true confession 
also involves a penitent attitude. Think of it this way. When you're confronted by the law for speeding, because we've all been pulled for speeding, right? At least one or two or ten times. And you admit to the officer uh, that, yeah, I was doing 70 in a 55 mile zone. You say, yeah, I know I was speeding, but man, I was running late and I wasn't paying attention. And before I realized how fast I was going, you nailed me. And the officer says with a smirk, you're right. I did nail you. Here's your ticket. Be safe and have a nice day. And then you begrudgingly receive the piece of paper. And while whispering under your breath, you say, gee, thanks a lot. Now, that attitude does not agree with the law that says you must not go over 55 miles an hour. And if you don't, the law of the land demands that you need to be penalized. In this case, in the form of a citation. What's worse than that is that it took the external confrontation to expose the crime. And then when it was brought to the light, you as the criminal, only then were compelled to admit the offense. But what? You hated the consequence. You didn't agree that you deserved a ticket. I mean, how many, how many times have we gotten a ticket and said, you know what, officer, I really deserve that? No. You say, why, why can't the cop just let me go, right? Why can't you just give me a warning? Why is he being a jerk? Do you have a bad day or something, right? That, that's what we think. And sadly, that's how many professing Christians review their sin in relation to others, in relation to God. But that's dead wrong. When it comes to your own sin, true confession goes like this. Brother or sister, my anger towards you was indeed evil and wrong. And I need to repent before you and my God. Will you forgive me? If that's not the attitude you have in your confession, your confession is worthless. When we sin, we don't say, sorry, I was mad at you. Hey, no one's perfect. Get over it now. You've got to forgive me. Let's move on. That attitude does not understand the gravitas and the severity of sin. That thinking reveals the theology that man is big and God is small. Why does James command us to confess our sins to one another? So we can gossip? So we can think, boy, I'm happy I don't have it as bad as that guy. So we can have have an opportunity to offer our opinion? No. He tells us why. We confess our sin to one another so that we can know what to pray for. James says, pray for one another. Another command here, to speak toward God in this passage. After we confess our sins to one another, which assumes what? We do sin ongoingly, right? After you confess your sins, you are divinely directed to pray for the believers. It's ordered to pray. 
for the people in your local church also assumes that we actually spend time together. And so I feel the necessity to remind you that one of the marks of a healthy and growing church is genuine fellowship. The kind of fellowship that happens organically as well as organizationally. Implication, in addition to the weekly worship service and regularly scheduled ministries, you all should be spending time together. And you shouldn't have to merely depend on elder-led small groups or church-sanctioned programs to do it. That is to say that we should get together on a regular basis. And it should happen on your own initiative on top of the planned, organized meetings. Now, may I offer you a loving, pastoral admonishment. This may offend some of you. So get ready. I have to exhort you. I am deeply concerned for our church. I have been for a long time. I'm concerned for you because you're all too busy. Some of you are just too busy. You make time for sports, social clubs, entertainment, recreation, and vacation. Some of those things, in moderation, are not sinful per se. But some of you make little to no time for developing meaningful relationships in this church so you can confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. So I I make this plea to you in love. If you want SVBC to grow spiritually and numerically, Go home. Forget about the Seahawks for an hour. Consider if your priorities are biblical. If regular, normal fellowship with the people sitting to your right and to your left is not a priority, then repent. And start confessing your sin to one another and praying for one another basic biblical church. Once again, the context dictates the content of our prayers. We don't just pray for travel mercies. We don't just pray for wisdom to make a decision. We don't pray for God to open up this opportunity or that door. We don't pray for whatever fleshly malady we might have. Merely, we pray in such a way that will bring spiritual remedy to the soul. James says, verse 16, pray so that you may be healed. As I've stated already, this has to do with spiritual healing, not physical. Healing in Scripture can refer to spiritual remedy. Other than the passage I read earlier, What comes to your mind? Isaiah 53, the well-known verse in the prophet about Christ. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. As Jesus, through faith alone, heals our broken and shattered sinful condition, James is saying that the prayers of men play a crucial part in healing the weakened saint. But just as any man should pray for the hurting believer, we learn something else essential about the nature of prayer in the last sentence of verse 16, which brings us to the fifth and final season that calls for earnest prayer to God. Pray when you're spiritually strong. Pray when you're strong. Verse 16 to the end of verse 18. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. At the end of that sentence, uh, the phrase accomplish much literally means is very strong. Prayer of a righteous man is very strong. So when you're hurting, you need strong people to come around you and pray for your restoration. Because as one preacher said, weak Prayers come from weak people, and strong prayers come from strong people. Again, it underscores the necessity of being a part of a healthy local church. And to illustrate the potency of a righteous prayer, James cites the example of one of the most famous Old Testament figures in verses 17 and 18. Look, look at it with me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning simply that he was just as depraved as you and I. He was just as in need of a Savior as you and I. He got depressed. He he was afraid. He got discouraged. But James says he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What we read here is uh, the narrative of a long drought that we can find in 1 Kings 17 and 18. God had proclaimed through Elijah that a drought would afflict the land as a means of punishing Ahab and Israel for their idolatry. As a result, rather than their land being blessed with living crops the lack of rain would result in a land of dead, barren wasteland. And so in keeping with this theme of spirituality in this text, right, James is painting a picture that illustrates God's outpouring of spiritual blessings on the dry land and parched, weakening souls of believers. These spiritual blessings come through intercessory prayer on part of the elders and righteous, faithful believers on behalf of the weak. God's word says right here that the prayers of the leaders and of the faithful, who James assumes to be strong men, plays a key role in the spiritual healing of a hurting believer, just as Elijah's prayer brought renewed life to a wayward Israel. Without the crops, Israel could not survive. Without the prayers, without 
the restoration, believers will also be a spiritual wasteland. So, if you find yourself in a season of spiritual strength, if you view yourself with a clean conscience, as righteous, not perfect, but walking with God in the Spirit and in the fellowship of your local church, spend time praying for those who are struggling with personal sin. Spend time praying for those struggling with loss or persecution. In this passage that we've covered, in closing, whose responsibility is it to pray? Whose responsibility is it to call on the elders? Whose responsibility is it Pray for the weak. Everybody point the thumb. Everybody. The elders cannot pray for you if you don't obey this command to call on us. The fellow believers sitting to your right and to your left cannot pray for you unless you spend time with them and confess your sins to them. Just because I'm a human too, you might not get to a place where you want to confess your sins unless you have a relationship with someone. So it's our responsibility, every responsibility, to pray. You must pray when you're spiritually hurt, when you're spiritually happy, when you're spiritually weak, when you're spiritually defiant. And when you're spiritually strong. Now, the command to pray without ceasing should mean a lot more to you now, shouldn't it? I hope so. As we let this revelation of James 13 to 18 sink into our hearts, we need to ask ourselves is there ever a season which doesn't call for earnest prayer? I think the answer to that question is no. This covers almost every aspect of your life, does it not? You're either hurt, you're either happy, you're either weak, you're either defiant, or you're strong. So, pray. And pray often. In fact, I think what I should do right now is pray as we close the message. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is convicting, it is heart-probing, It breaks us, but it also builds us up. May we repent of any pride. May we repent of any prayerlessness. May we we repent of being too busy to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. May you bless this church despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, and despite our immaturities. We love you and we want to glorify you, Lord. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.